time, in its irresistible and ceaseless flow, carries along on its flood all created things, and drowns them in the depths of obscurity, no matter if they be quite unworthy of mention, or most noteworthy and important. And thus, as the tragedian says, he brings from the darkness all things to the birth, and all things born envelops in the night. But the tale of history forms a very strong bulwark against the stream of time, and to some extent checks its irresistible flow. And of all things done in it, as many as history has taken over, it secures and binds together, and does not allow them to slip away into the abyss of oblivion. These are the first lines of the Alexiad, written by Anna Komnena, Byzantine historian and born in the Purple Princess. The Alexiad tells the story of her father, the Emperor Alexios Komnenos, whose name should be familiar to you. It will be Alexios in the 1090s who will coordinate an armed pilgrimage of Latin Franks into the Middle East, a pilgrimage that will end where we began, at the founding of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Alexios's aims, though, weren't to establish independent Frankish kingdoms in the Middle East. No, not at all. He was simply trying to muster a military force capable of driving Turkish invaders out of the Byzantine lands in Anatolia. It was all part of the mop-up job that was left to him when he became emperor. See, when Alexius became emperor in 1081, the empire was just inches away from the precipice of that abyssal oblivion Anna would later write of. The forces of Islam, in the shape of Seljuk Turks recently arrived from the steppe, were just a stone's throw away from the Byzantine capital in Constantinople and other invaders, both from the north and west, threatened to close in on them as well. How did things get so bad for the once mighty Roman Empire that they had to rely on foreigners just to stay alive? Well, find out on today's episode of History of the Ultramare. And welcome to History of the Ultramare, Episode 3. Weni, Widi, Graike, Loku, Tushun. Or in English, I came, I saw, I spoke in Greek. And yeah, let's address the elephant in the room. The Romans aren't speaking Latin in the 10th century. They're speaking Greek. But they've been speaking Greek for a while. I obviously copied Julius Caesar's famous Weni, Widi, Wiki. But he's got another quote that's seared into the popular consciousness as well. Famously presented in the Shakespeare play, his final words after being stabbed by the other Roman senators, one of whom was his bestest buddy ever, Brutus. Shakespeare has Caesar utter the line, et tu, Brute? But Julius Caesar didn't say this line in Latin. We don't know exactly what he said, of course, but the Roman historians who claim to have recorded his last moments quote him as saying, and you too, my child, not in Latin, but in Greek, kai su technon, a phrase that I'm probably completely mispronouncing. My Latin is by no means perfect, but it's decent enough, whereas I don't speak any Greek at all. Unlike Caesar, who was bilingual. As the title of the episode says, he came, he saw, he spoke in Greek. 
and he was not alone in this. Pretty much the entire Roman elite were all taught to speak Greek at least as well as Latin, and they viewed Greek culture, and particularly literature, as the pinnacle of erudition. So it's no surprise that the eastern half of the empire, which was closer to the source of that culture, and always much wealthier and cultured than the western backwaters, would end up preferring Greek to Latin. And after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the 6th century, and then the loss of the provinces in Syria, Palestine, and Egypt to the Muslim Caliphate in the 7th century, all that was left of the Roman Empire was that central Greek-speaking core, the Balkans and Anatolia, roughly corresponding to modern-day Greece and Turkey. Well, that and the southern Italian territories we visited last time in episode 2. For hundreds of years, the Romans were powerless to do anything against the new Mediterranean superpower, the Muslim Caliphate, and they could barely hold their own against new regional powers like the Bulgars and the Rus. Instead, they holed up inside their capital, Constantinople. The emperor, Constantine I, had specifically chosen the location of the ancient city of Byzantium for the city that he renamed after himself, Constantine's city, Constantinople. At the bridge between Europe and Asia, and surrounded on three sides by water, Constantinople was nearly impregnable, and Constantine saw to it that a wall was erected to block off the remaining land side. Later, the Emperor Theodosian built an even more impressive set of double walls, making the city damn near unconquerable. Let's imagine you find yourself besieging the Romans' capital. If you want, I've put up a picture of the city's defenses so you can get a visual. It's available at our website, just like all of our other maps and sources, at historyoftheuchmer.wordpress.com. That's historyoftheuchmer, one word, .wordpress.com. All right, so if you're coming at the city by land from the west, the first thing you come across is a moat, 20 meters wide and about 10 meters deep. Okay, no problem. You swim across. Now you find yourself facing a wall, 2 meters thick and 9 meters tall. Let's say, just for kicks, that you somehow get through or over this wall. Well, now you're up against the inner wall. This one is 6 meters thick and 12 meters high. And while you've been busy swimming and climbing over walls, the Byzantine army inside has been raining hellfire on you from the ramparts. Alright, so scratch that. Let's say you decide to approach the city by water. On the southern side, you have to come up from the Sea of Marmara, which narrows into the Bosporus Strait and empties into the Black Sea to the north. The waters in this sea are so rough and choppy that you'll barely be able to stay afloat. You'll probably end up smashed against the seawalls. Because of course, there are also seawalls, 10 meters tall, right up against the water. And not only will the Byzantines again be raining arrows on you, but the Romans have another trick up their sleeve. Greek fire. Greek fire consists of oil that the Romans would shoot out onto the water and also onto enemy ships, and then set on fire. The fire this oil produces not only burns through flesh and wood, but you can't put it out with water. So if you happen to get some on you, yeah, you're toast. Burnt toast. Okay, so let's say you avoid the arrows and the Greek fire, and you make it to the Bosporus, and you're trying to make it to the thin inlet that borders the city on the north, known as the Golden Horn. It's basically a narrow river blocking the city on the north. As you try to navigate from the Bosporus on the east into the Golden Horn, suddenly the Romans will pull up a huge chain to block off the passage. And if you somehow make it past the chain, the northern side of the city facing the Golden Horn has its own set of walls, 10 meters tall. And of course, throughout all this, you'll still have to avoid 
arrows, and Greek fire. So yeah, you're fucked. Between 650 and 1050, the city was besieged four times by the Umayyad Caliphate, four times by the Bulgarians, and twice by the Rus. None of these seizures were successful. The third Umayyad attempt actually lasted four straight years, and still, the city held fast against the would-be invaders. In fact, the only successful siege during this period was the final result of a civil war, and the city basically betrayed the emperor inside in favor of the emperor outside. But still, looking at it another way, that's ten times that foreign forces made it all the way to the capital, so obviously the Romans had to rely on this last defense quite a lot. And over those four centuries, holed up behind their impenetrable defenses, the Romans started to suffer from a bit of societal cabin fever. While waiting for the storm to blow over, and cut off from any hope of rebuilding their once great empire, the Romans began to focus in on those traits that made them, well, Roman. The medieval Roman Empire became a very different animal from the ancient one. It retained its Roman institutional core, and the regional importance of Greek led it to become a de facto official language, as opposed to the melange of Latin, Greek, Syriac, and Coptic that had once all held importance in the empire. Perhaps the most important shift of all was the focus on religion. Orthodox Christianity had been important to the Roman Empire ever since Constantine, but during the Byzantine era, it became synonymous with the Roman Emperor and the Empire, and the Emperor viewed himself as the ruler and protector of all Christians. Last time, we saw how this led to an awkward state of affairs and conflict with the Pope in Rome, who also viewed himself as the ruler and protector of all Christians. These three elements, Roman law, the Greek language, and Orthodox Christianity, are what makes a Roman in the 11th century. That's a marked difference from the ancient concept of empire. The classical Roman Empire of Augustus and Hadrian and Nero ruled from England to Syria, but it didn't impose its own laws, culture, or religion on those areas. Instead, local rulers were incorporated into the system, and slowly over time, many did start to adopt Roman language and culture. However, this new medieval empire was much more homogenous. It contained some minorities, that's true, particularly Armenians, but the Roman ethnic identity became something solid. And during the second half of the first millennium, when the empire was militarily weakened, it grew to develop even more on what the Byzantine court official and historian Michael Pselos called the twin pillars of Roman power, wealth and titles. Because compared to Western Europe, the Romans were rich, filthy rich. They had inherited the Roman tax structure, you know, the whole render into Caesar shtick, and it paid off. Folks were definitely rendering. It's worth noting how different the East was from the West in this regard. In places like France, local lords did what they pleased, and they were only somewhat loyal to the king. While in the Roman Empire, there were no local authorities that the emperor hadn't put into place himself. The entire economy revolved around the central tax authority and this led to Byzantine vaults chock full of gold coins. Which is the other big difference, of course. This economy had coins, while what was once the western half of the Roman Empire had devolved to payments in kind. Basically, you paid whatever you owed with whatever you produced, be it sheep, or linen, or wheat, or alcohol. The fact that the emperor had such a tight grip on such a developed economy meant that he was able to directly control the nobility in the empire. For example, Every year, the regional governors, the strategoi, would have to appear in person before the emperor in Constantinople on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, 
and receive their salary. The same was true for basically every other administrator. The message in this ritual was clear. The center of power was the emperor in Constantinople. That's where the money came from. A stark difference from Western Europe, where each noble had his own little castle and fiefdom, and the king was lucky if he could keep them from going to war with him. Roman salaries weren't only for administrators. They were often attached to ceremonial positions. This is that second pillar, titles and honors. These ceremonial positions were highly coveted and fought over, and not only given to native Romans, but foreigners. A visitor to Constantinople could expect to be showered in riches and titles and honors, and of course, they would have to submit to the emperor and accept his superiority. All except, of course, representatives from the Abbasid Caliph. In its heyday, the caliphate was way too powerful to even attempt to humble it. No, instead, wealth and honors were given to the caliph in hopes that he would allow the Romans to survive. Using this system of wealth and honors and titles, the Romans were often able to buy their way out of trouble, or at least convince possible enemies that it was better to accept gifts than get set on fire trying to storm Constantinople. You know, it's not like they didn't have any military power. And they also used this as a bit of a stick, a partner to the carrot of just letting the Romans shower you in gold. Uh, that came out weird. Anyway... The Byzantines were very careful about how they presented themselves. A short guide on dealing with embassies from around the 9th century states, If the envoys come from very distant parts, so that there are a number of peoples between them and ourselves, then we may show them as much and whatsoever of ours as we wish. Likewise, even if they are our neighbors, but are our inferiors in power. But if they far surpass us, either in the size of their army or in courage, we should show them neither our wealth nor the beauty of our women, but rather masses of our men and the good order of our weaponry and the height of our walls. Yeah, you know, I can be your devil or I can be your angle. And this strategy worked. The Roman Empire was able to avoid being wiped off the map and hold on to their possessions in the Balkans and Anatolia. And things more or less carried on like this for the next few centuries, give or take the odd theological controversy and or blinding. Until along came Basil. Basil was a peasant who originally found work as a palace stable hand. He somehow became friends with the teenage emperor of the day, Michael, and convinced Michael to name him co-emperor. But Basil was a tricky son of a bitch. Not long after being named emperor himself, he turned on his friend and murdered Michael, taking power for Basil. And so, in this way, a nobody peasant became the founder of the longest Roman dynasty that had ever existed. The Macedonian dynasty took its name from the region of Macedonia, which is possibly where Basil was from, but also possibly not. I mean, the guy was a peasant. He didn't exactly have the most spectacular genealogical reports. But peasant or not, his dynasty lasted nearly two centuries, from 867 to 1056, and brought the empire, if not all the way back, then at least back to the forefront. We can't give all the credit to the Macedonians, though. The empire's rebirth in the 10th century was in large part thanks to the near-total collapse of the Abbasid Caliphate, a decline which started in the 800s. As the 9th and 10th century went by, the caliph began to lose any sort of control over local rulers, and instead, these rulers began to fight amongst themselves. It was this lack of central control that allowed for the Fatimids to rise to power in Africa. And as I mentioned in episode 1, by the year 1000, the Abbasid Caliph himself was just a figurehead. 
instead of one central authority, power had devolved to local rulers. Emirs, like the ones in Sicily. This sorry state of affairs proved quite fortuitous for the Romans. They could never have stood up to the full might of the Abbasid Caliph. But once they were just dealing with local, mostly independent emirs who were too busy fighting each other to mount a coordinated assault, yeah, the Romans definitely made the best of the opportunity. And even here, we can't fully credit the Macedonians. Most of the gains were made by two generals who became regent co-emperors and steered the ship while the young Macedonian emperor of the day, Basil II, was still a child. It was under the command of these soldier emperors that the empire was able to expand its borders once again. First up was Nikephoros Phokas, who took advantage of the crumbling Abbasid Caliphate to take back lands that had been taken by the Muslims centuries prior. Nikephoros' name is made up of two Greek words. Nike, like the brand pronounced Nike in English, means victory, and Phoros means bringer. So Nikephoros means the bringer of Air Jordans. Uh, I mean, bringer of victory. And first as a general, and then later as co-emperor, he definitely lived up to this name. In the East, he so badly whooped the former Muslim emirs that he was given the title the White Death of the Saracens. That White Death bit refers to the way his enemies would go pale when he slaughtered them. Uh, Nikephoros himself was dark-skinned. Under Nikephoros' military command, the islands of Crete and Cyprus, as well as Cilicia, the southern coastal region of Anatolia, were all brought back into the empire. The island of Crete had only recently fallen into Muslim hands uh, in the early 800s, about a century earlier. An independent group of exiles from Al-Andalus, or Muslim Spain, had run into some trouble in Cordoba and set out to find their fortune elsewhere. First, they took Alexandria in Egypt for a short while before the Abbasids returned and kicked them out. And then they took the island of Crete from the Romans as a bit of a consolation prize. They'd turned the island into a pirate paradise and raided all along the southern Greek coasts, causing mayhem both for the residents of those areas as well as for trade in the region. As such, emperor after emperor had made attempts to take Crete back, but it wasn't until Nikephoros that it actually got done. When Nikephoros finally did take the island back, he also took back the spoils the various pirate expeditions had collected on the island. And of course, being a stand-up guy, he made sure it was all returned to the rightful owners. Psych. He put a good chunk in the treasury, but divided the rest amongst his soldiers, except for the slaves and riches he used for his triumph and kept for himself. The island underwent a pretty dramatic re-Christianization at this time. There were almost certainly still Christians on the island, but it seems like the urban areas were dominated by Muslims. Nikephoros had the mosques destroyed, and the Muslim residents of the island were either killed, sold as slaves, or forced to convert to Christianity. The son of the emir himself converted to Christianity and joined the Roman military. Some of his descendants even became respected generals. So yeah, a thousand years later, little evidence remains of the once wealthy Muslim emirate of Crete. And as for the island of Cyprus, I'd recommend keeping an eye on this space. Cyprus will become particularly important during the Third Crusade. Just in case you're not looking at a map, that's historyofthebuchamera.wordpress.com, Cyprus is just west of modern-day Lebanon, and it represented a very odd arrangement between Rome and Islam, known as a condominium. The condominium basically gave both Constantinople and the Caliphate divided control over the island, despite the ongoing conflict on the mainland. This obviously complicated state of affairs had shifted a few times. Notably, Basil I had placed the island under exclusive Roman control, but that had only lasted a few years. 
Now that the caliphate was crumbling, it's not even clear who represented Islam on the island, so it wasn't all that hard for Nikephoros' forces to expel the Muslim presence. And to the north, on the mainland, the land in Cilicia had long represented the border between Byzantium and Islam. It was a heavily militarized zone that the Muslims used as a launch pad for raids into Byzantium, and they called it the Thugur. Now that power had devolved to local rulers, it was mostly the emir of Aleppo, Saif al-Dawla, the sword of the dynasty, who attempted to put a brave face on as the Romans charged towards Syria. But both internal politics and a lack of resources seriously limited how much of a fight Saif al-Dawla could put up. After some years of conflict, which saw the Romans go as far as Aleppo itself to sack the city, Cilicia was formally reincorporated into the empire. For now, at least. Arabic sources, probably apocryphally, quote Nikephoros saying to Saif al-Dawla, nothing is left in your Thugur except ashes. Cilicia was the extent of Nikephoros' formal conquest in the east, but he continued to make raids into Muslim Syria. He made it as far as Antioch, and though he attempted to take this holy city back, it would not give itself over to the Romans just yet. And in many places, he didn't exactly reconquer, but he turned the Muslim emirs into Roman client states, meaning that they were basically small independent states loyal to the Roman Empire. He also coordinated the peaceful incorporation of Tauron, an Armenian kingdom. This was the beginning of the Roman acquisition in the region of Armenia, which lies to the east of the empire in the mountains between the Black and Caspian Seas. You know, where Armenia is today. On paper, it seemed like Nikephoros could do no wrong. But of course, after a few years on top, his nephew, the general, Ioannis Dimitskis, murdered him and took the region co-emperor position for himself. And no one so much as batted an eye which was really not that big a surprise. Nikephoros was great on the battlefield and all that, but he was terrible at politics. Just a few months before his murder, he'd received word that a Roman general, Michael Butsis, had disobeyed official orders and taken the city of Antioch by himself. Although Nikephoros was obviously happy to have the holy city back in the empire, he was so pissed that it had been done without permission that he fired Butsis. Nikephoros was definitely not management material. Instead of praising Burtzis' initiative, he fired the guy. And Burtzis wasn't the only one. He had also fired the soon-to-be uncle murderer, Zimitskis. Even though, by all accounts, his nephew was an excellent general, and his efforts had been invaluable in taking Cilicia. You know, I think we've all had bosses like that. Guys who just want to murder in their sleep. Totally typical response to poor leadership. Anyway, that's what Zimitskis did. Plotting with some other disgruntled generals, including Wurtzes, they snuck into Nikephoros' bedroom at night and found the old man sleeping on a bearskin rug. Dude, this guy was like straight out of a pulp adventure novel. The white death of the Saracens. Anyway, Dimiskes killed Nikephoros then and there, presumably ruining the bearskin rug, and cut off his head to show to the guards. I mean, no point in fighting if the old man's already dead. And then Dimiskes had himself proclaimed emperor. The assassins had definitely read the situation well. Nikephoros, despite his military victories, had made himself enough enemies in the city of Constantinople that the people just accepted this murdering nephew as their new emperor. The transition was made even easier because despite his questionable rise to power, Dimiskes proved to be a pretty good soldier emperor himself and continued where his uncle had left off, consolidating the empire's hold over their newly won eastern border and dealing with the Kievan Rus. Uh, you remember those Vikings in Kiev we talked about last time. 
Yeah, by all accounts, Zemeskes was a perfectly capable general and emperor. And what's more, he didn't overstay his welcome. He died in 976, after seven years of rule. Of natural causes. Very rare for a Byzantine. Although, there is the rumor that he was poisoned, which, you know, kind of makes more sense given this is Byzantium. By this point, in 976, the 18-year-old Macedonian emperor, Basil II, was old enough to start to exert power for himself. Well, first he had to get rid of his eunuch busybody uncle, also named Basil, and then two upstart rebellious generals, Bardas Skleros and Bardas Focas. Uh, you know, Byzantine history is really cool and full of awesome soap opera murders and bearskin rugs, but they really need to get some new names in the mix. Anyway, in 985, after having done away with his uncle and the rebels, Basil II was finally sole and senior emperor of the Romans. I can just imagine him singing, I just can't wait to be king, for 25 long years of having to deal with decisions being made over his head. Now the empire was truly his, and he would rule it alone for another 40 years, making his reign the longest of any Roman emperor, even without the years he spent as a junior emperor, which would bring his grand total up to 65 years. Basil II would solidify the Roman Empire's position in the region. He crushed and annexed the Bulgarian kingdom, earning himself the title Basil the Bulgar Slayer, and the infamy of having blinded hundreds of Bulgar prisoners. He also ensured the absorption of various Armenian kingdoms, bringing the empire to its largest size in centuries, spanning from southern Italy in the west to the Caucasus in the east. As they expanded, the empire had also begun to enter into a bit of a cold war with the new Muslim power par excellence, the Fatimids. I say cold war, but it was really more of a lukewarm war. They did enter into conflict, both in Sicily and southern Italy, as well as some of the island regions. Supposedly, Nikephoros' takeover of Cyprus was motivated in part by a desire to cut the Fatimids off from a source of timber that they would use for shipbuilding. Still, the main area of conflict was Syria-Palestine. As the Romans moved in from the north, the Fatimids moved in from the south. It's interesting to say the least that when the Abbasid Caliphate crumbled, it was the Muslim Fatimid Caliphate who took Jerusalem, not the Christian Romans. The Romans didn't seem to feel that they could comfortably extend their power that far south. Instead, the border between the new Roman gains and the new Fatimid gains in Syria was drawn at Aleppo, which, after the fall of Saif al-Dawla, became a flip-flopping client state, like the Lombards in southern Italy. It switched sides from Constantinople to Cairo, as was convenient. But this conflict was really lukewarm. Neither side really made any serious attempts at destroying the other, and eventually they developed somewhat cordial relationships. As we saw in episode 1, the Fatimids, with the exception of Al-Hakim, had no problems with Byzantine Orthodox Christians, or as they called them, Melkites. And the Romans, in 1027, after signing a treaty with the Fatimids, repaired the mosque in Constantinople and decreed that the Friday prayers would be said in the name of the Fatimid Caliph, not the Abbasid Caliph. And the mere presence of this mosque shows that there was a Muslim community in Constantinople, mostly merchants. And that was another big factor, trade. With Roman control established over the islands that had once housed pirates' nests, trade in the eastern Mediterranean began to flourish. The two main points of trade were Constantinople and Alexandria in Egypt. This Byzantine-Egyptian trade network also started to incorporate more and more Italian merchants, those city-states like Amalfi that keep popping up in our narrative. 
Though they're currently just junior partners, the Italians will soon come to be big players in Mediterranean trade, and the Outremer states will all have to accommodate an Italian quarter in their coastal cities. Speaking of accommodating minorities, the empire was also back to being multicultural. In the Balkans, the Bulgarian power structure remained mostly intact, and the newly acquired Armenian territories were also left to their own devices. We'll be coming back to Armenia and the Armenians in a few episodes, but for now, it's important to know that although the Armenians were also Christian, most were not Byzantine Orthodox. In fact, many were, like the Copts in Egypt, non-Chalcedonian. They also weren't the only non-Orthodox Christians in the empire now. The newly won territory in the Levant, in places like Antioch, was full of Christians. And though some were Melkite, or Byzantine Orthodox, many were Jacobites, Syrian Christians, who, again like the Copts, were non-Chalcedonian Christians. In fact, one of Nikephoros' political bunglings had had to do with the Jacobites. In an attempt to repopulate the border territories with Christians, he'd made a deal with the Jacobite church that they would be allowed to handle their own affairs if they immigrated into the empire to newly conquered eastern border cities like Melitene. This move was very unpopular with the Orthodox Church in Constantinople, and Nikephoros ended up going back on this deal and persecuting the Jacobites. Though later, Dimisces put an end to this persecution, and it seems like the Jacobite community was mostly left alone during his reign and then Basil's. So sure, there were demographic challenges, but that's just the signs of suffering from success. The Romans are back on top, baby. Basil's a super capable dude, and I'm sure he'll raise his successor to carry on in his footsteps. Uh, wait, what's that? Oh boy. You guys remember Tancred from Oatville and his hyperfertility? Well, he must have been sucking it all out of the atmosphere and leaving none for fellows like Basil. Because Basil not only didn't marry, but he had no kids. Still not necessarily a problem though. The glorious Pax Romana of the 2nd century was ruled over by childless emperors who adopted their successors, making sure that the next guy was the legal heir and also avoiding any spoiled palace brats ending up on the throne. So, all good, right? Um, except Basil didn't do that either. He seems to have made no succession plans at all. Zero, zilch, nothing, nada. And we really don't know why. Though there are plenty of theories we won't be getting into in any detail. They range from Basil was gay, though still no idea why he wouldn't just adopt the successor, to some sort of eschatological belief that the world would end in the year 1000, which came and went halfway through Basil's reign, to the very logical idea that he was nervous any sort of official successor would encourage a murder plot to remove Basil from the picture. But these are all theories. The only thing we know for certain is that when he died in 1025, at the age of 66, the empire was left to his brother, Constantine VIII, who was also old and sick, but did have children, two daughters, but Empresses weren't unknown to Byzantium, so we're still good. We're a-okay. Except again, not. Because these Macedonian princesses, Basil's nieces, Zoe and Theodora, were also unmarried and also had no kids. So, when Basil died in 1025, it was clear that despite having three possible heirs, the Macedonian dynasty was doomed. It was only a question of when, and even more importantly, who was going to take power next? And here we come to the decline. Remember, 
Basil was one guy who ruled single-handedly for about 40 years, and during that time, he provided continuity and stability. On the other hand, the four decades following his death, from 1025 to 1068, will see the rise and fall of no less than 11 emperors, and coup after coup after civil war after civil war. In fact, things won't really calm down until 1081, when Alexios Komnenos comes to power. Throughout this period of chaos, the empire will lose nearly all of its newly gained territory, and most of Anatolia as well. In hindsight, Nikephoros, Dimisces, and Basil look like ramps, propelling the Romans up and up and up and up, and after Basil's death, launching them in the air. There, they'll float for a few seconds before they come crashing down. Hard. Roman instability won't go unnoticed either. Soon, the vultures will be circling. We already met the Normans. In 1025, Robert Giscar is about 10 years old. Within a few decades, he and his brothers will be putting an end to Roman rule in Italy. But the Giscar is nothing compared to the enemy fast approaching from the east. Cue the Imperial Death March, because they are the most formidable foes the Empire has faced since the Caliphate threatened to wipe the entire Empire off the map. Like the Normans in Italy, but bigger and badder. This group of horse riders are about to bring order to an anarchic stew by uniting nearly all of the withered caliphate's territory and finally accomplishing the Muslim dream of bringing the Roman Empire to its knees. They are the Seljuk Turks. When Alexios Komnenos calls on the Pope to send an army which can deal with the Muslim threat in Constantinople's front door, it's the Seljuks he's referring to. And it's the Seljuks who will end up sharing a border with the Utremer states. So next time, on History of the Utremer, we'll be diving into the Eurasian steppe to fully understand the Seljuk Turks.